welcome to Crossview Radio, a weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, I've been preaching through the book of Genesis, as uh, most of you know, here at Crossview Church, and this has caused us to deal with a number of issues relating to the age of the earth and the difference between the young earth creationist position and, of course, the various secular uh, and old earth creationist positions. Uh, In light of that, uh, I am really excited and pleased to let you know that we're joined today uh, by Dr. Andrew Snelling. He is... uh, Uh, works at Answers in Genesis. He holds a PhD in geology from the University of Sydney, Australia. He is currently the director of research at Answers in Genesis and the editor-in-chief of the Answers Research Journal. He has uh, an extensive and uh, I'll say impressive resume, and I've been blessed to read through uh, the various articles that he has written and watch some videos as well. Uh, Dr. Snelling, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you. Uh, before uh, we get into a couple of the questions that I had here, I just wanted maybe if you could briefly share with us just a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today in the interests that you're pursuing. Yeah, I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. Uh, became a Christian early in life because of uh, being brought up in a Christian home and hearing the gospel mm-hmm. at a uh, holiday camp. And uh, But I started picking up rocks uh, 12 months after I was uh, became a Christian at age nine, and I got hooked on geology pretty early. So by the time I was in high school, I was convinced I was going to be a geologist. And so I faced these issues early sure. on in my teenage years. And uh, as a result of reading the book, The Genesis Flood by Drs. Whitcomb and Morris, mm-hmm. uh, I, and examining what was in the textbooks, I became convinced of the young earth creationist viewpoint mm-hmm. because of my absolute trust in the authority of God's Word. So, uh, But then I, I went through uh, secular uh, training as a geologist, and mm-hmm. that, of course, challenged my faith, but I needed to continue to sort through the issues. Uh, I went on and did the PhD, and uh, during that time I became uh, aware of a uh, creationist ministry that was starting in Australia. And after graduating, I went, worked in the mining industry for a couple of years, but then I started in full-time creation ministry, mm. first in Australia and now in later years in, in the USA. Mm. Well, your um, research and your study has been uh, an encouragement, I know, to me. And actually, uh, I, I referenced one of your articles uh, during uh, a sermon that I preached a few weeks back uh, on Genesis chapter 1, and it was the article that you referenced uh, Mount Narohoy as an illustration of radioactive decay rates. And so I have, um, I have a few questions about that, about uh, the radiometric dating methods, and I wanted to talk mm-hmm. uh, for a few minutes uh, on that to kind of maybe supplement what we've been talking about as a church. Uh, but maybe just to start off this topic, can you give us just uh, a simple explanation of how scientists use radio, radiometric dating to determine the age of rocks, other materials, that kind of thing. What, what's the typical secular well, uh, explanation? It's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, people can imagine an hourglass, you know, the mm-hmm. two glass bowls with the sand grains, and you start with all the sand grains in the top, and after an hour, all the sand grains fall to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you um, start the process... Say you're uh, in your study and you start the process and uh, you go out to 
put out the trash can or something like that and you come back in and you want to know how long you've been out putting the trash can out, what do you do? You look at how many sand grains are still up the top and how many have fallen down to the bottom mm-hmm. and you do a mathematical calculation. Oh, I know it takes an hour for all of the sand grains to fall from the top to the bottom. There's only oh a quarter of the sand grains down the bottom so I was only out of the room for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so geologists do the same sort of thing. But they measure the the atoms that are in the of the particular elements. So the, the, the sand grains in the top glass bowl are the parent atoms mm-hmm. that decay to the sand grains in the bottom of the glass bowl, which is our daughter atoms. Mm-hmm. So if you measure how many parent and daughter atoms are in the rock today, and if you know how long it takes for the sand grains to fall or the atoms to decay from parent to daughter, mm-hmm. from uranium to lead or potassium to argon, then by, by doing a simple, simple calculation, you, you're calculating to, well, when were all the argon atoms mm-hmm. originally potassium argon, uh, potassium atoms? That would be when the process started, when the rock formed. So just like when you went out of the room, you know, a quarter of the grains are now and now argon instead of potassium, and you do the calculation, you're out of the room for 15 minutes. It's the same sort of thing um, to, to, to work out the age of the rock. It's just like reading a clock. So that that sounds pretty pretty watertight, at least at first glance. I mean, that's what I was presented in, uh, in high school when I took uh, earth science. And I remember at the time, my teacher had told us as a class uh, she had presented all this this uh, information similar to what you've done and said, made this claim that radiometric dating cannot be wrong. It must be right because of all these uh, reasons. But since that time, I have uh, come to, to recognize that the reason that it's not reliable is because it's not a closed system. And that was something that was never explained to me back then. But can you explain a little bit on um, yeah, yeah, on, on that it's, topic? It's quite simple, John. There are three basic assumptions that are usually glossed over by okay. most people. Uh, they are mentioned in the textbooks, but then they're not referred back to. But they are primarily important because you've got to remember we're examining the rock in the present and we're trying to interpret what happened in the past mm-hmm. when we weren't there, we weren't observed. So, for example... In the study, you knew all the sand grains were in the top glass bowl when you started the process mm-hmm. before you went out to put the trash can. But how do you know that that the rocks, all the atoms were originally potassium and there were no argon? Right. How do you know that there might have not been some argon as well as potassium atoms in the rock to begin with? Mm-hmm. So you've got to know the initial conditions and you've got to assume that there were no daughter atoms to begin with. Mm-hmm. Secondly, as you said, you've got to assume it's a closed system. I mean, unbeknownst to you, while you're out of your room, your mischievous eight-year-old came in and added some more sand grains to the top <laughs> glass sure. bowl. The system became contaminated because it was opened. Now, think about it. We've got rocks that are sitting out there supposedly in the secular mine for millions of years. We know today that groundwater flows through through rocks. You can leach potassium out of rocks. You know, argon will leak out of the rock, uh, out of out of rocks there at the surface of the earth with weathering. So how do you know it's been mm. a closed system? In all probability, it hasn't been a closed system. And then thirdly, 
you have to assume that the rate of decay, the rate that the sand grains fall in the glass bowls, between the glass bowls, has always remained constant. Now, we've only measured the decay rates in the last 80, 100 years at the most, and we're assuming that those decay rates have stayed the same for four and a half billion years, according to the secular time scale. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a huge extrapolation. How do we know that some event in the past didn't disturb the decay rates. If that was the if that was the case, if that was the case, then the clocks are invalid. They don't work. Mm-hmm. So these three basic assumptions are crucial. They're unprovable, and they're even unreasonable because we know that rocks inherit uh, isotopes or uh, parent daughter <coughs> atoms when they form. Uh, you've mentioned examples of that already to your congregation, I know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, the, the contamination occurs. And we've even got evidence of, of um, decay rates changing in the past. Hmm. What, what are, give me some examples, um, because this is more than, it's more than just theory. We have observable scientific examples where uh, you take a known age and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. contradicts what the, the, uh, potassium argon or other method is saying. Do you have some examples of that that are yes. notable? Or yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of examples that that actually come out of the secular scientific literature, hmm. the conventional scientific literature. They're in the textbooks that are used to teach uh, geochronology, rock, the radiometric dating of rocks in universities. And for example, uh, the best ones to to point to are where we actually observe the rock to form. Sure. So, for example, uh, you mentioned to the congregation Mount Narahoe in New Zealand. That was Mount Doom in the Lord of yes. the Rings <laughs> yeah. movies. Well, we, we witnessed historic eruptions, mm-hmm. and we can go and and I did that. I went in and sampled lava flows. We knew the day, the month, the year mm. the lava had had flowed, sure. and these samples gave potassium argon ages up to 3.5 million years. Hmm. Uh, you go to Mount St. Helens, where we saw a new lava dome form after the 19th, May 18, 1980 eruption. Sample, a friend of mine sampled a lava flow in the, in the new dome inside the crater mm-hmm. that, that we knew was formed in 1986, and he, he had it analysed 10 years later, and it gave ages up to 2.8 million mm, years wow. for a rock that was only observed to be only 10 years old. Sure. And these, these are in the literature as well. For example, he, in Hawaii, the 1800 and 1801 flows there on the Big Island, uh, the uh, Hulalai uh, basalt uh, gave ages up to 22.5 million years. Mm. And, and we knew that they were less than 200 years old. Sure. So uh, these are problems that the scientific community know about. Then you can go to islands like Hawaii and other, other islands in the oceans and, and look at recent lava flows and date them using the uranium lead method. Okay. And you'll get ages of between one and two billion years. Wow. And so this is well known in the geological literature that, Many, many uh, recent lava flows sure. will inherit the, the atomic composition of these parent-daughter atoms mm-hmm. that is in the source area inside the Earth where the rocks melted and erupted at the surface. Mm-hmm. 
and so that's the only way they can explain it. In other words, the initial composition was inherited. Everything wasn't zero to begin with. Right. And so you've got that difficulty. And also, um, a, a minute ago, you had said, and I want you to expand on this a little bit if you can, you said um, that we know that the decay rates have not always been the same. And I believe, if I'm correct on this, you were part of a project that uh, demonstrated that. Uh, can you explain a little bit about how we know yes. that decay rates have changed? Yes, that was the radio, uh, the rate project, radioisotopes oh, okay. in the Age of the Earth project, 1997 to 2005. Uh, the group of scientists included geophysicists and, and physicists as well as geologists, and we found five independent uh, lines of evidence that the decay rates had been accelerated in the past. Now, I was involved in several of the investigations. Uh, and, for example, we went to the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. and we, we selected four different rock units in the basement rocks of the Grand Canyon. And instead of just submitting them for one of the methods, we submitted for all four methods. Okay. That is uranium, lead, potassium, argon, rubidium, strontium, samarium, neodymium. Okay. And we found invariably, in every case, the ages by different methods were different. Mm. And so, for example, a lava flow in the eastern Grand Canyon, lava flows in the eastern Grand Canyon, gave a potassium argon age of 516 million years, a rubidium strontium age of 1,060 million years thereabouts, and a samarium age of 1,588 million years. Mm. Vastly different, hmm. yeah. And there was a pattern in in the in the ages. The potassium argon was always the youngest, and that corresponds with it has the the shortest half life. Okay. The quickest. It's the quickest decay. It also had to do with the atomic weight of the parent atom, parent atoms that were decaying, and so there was this systematic difference that indicated some systematic process was was occurring. And the only way to reconcile those different results was if the decay rates had been speeded up in the past okay. in some catastrophic event. And because of the different weights of the parent atoms, sure. they were speeded up by different amounts, thus giving okay. you the different ages. So that was one line of evidence. Uh, another line of evidence was uh, in the same granite in New Mexico, we got the uranium lead age, the radiometric age, at one and a half billion years, but the helium, helium is is produced by uh, uranium decay, so the amount of helium that was still in the rock, knowing that that helium leaks out because it's a very tiny atom, it Mm -hmm. it slips out of the crystal lattice, Mm -hmm. and knowing that how fast, uh, testing how fast helium leaks, the amount of helium left would would be equivalent, and the leakage rate would be equivalent to the grains being only six thousand years old. Okay, and and that's a far more reliable process because we can actually physically measure leakage, okay, etc. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that implied that a one and a half billion years worth of uranium decay had produced the helium that had leaked out in only six thousand years. Mm. So your decay rates had to be speeded up. Mm. So there was good evidence like that, and and we looked at looked at radio halos and fission tracks. We don't have time to go into the details, but also radiocarbon, rocks that were very old 
and diamonds, coal, for example, that was over 300 million years old, and diamonds that are supposed to be one to two, one to three billion years old, gave young radiocarbon ages, hmm. indicating that they may not be as old as, as the other methods indicate. So that means that the, the decay rates to give those vast ages by the other methods had to have been speeded up. Hmm. So here's what's fascinating to me. You, you've got um, you, you've got documentation here that we know that the decay rates have not always been consistent. And then we have observable evidence here in the present where we've seen uh, a rock form. We know the age of it. And um, it's contradicting the radiometric dating uh, potassium argon. Here, here's what perplexes me um, in, in all of this. If scientists can't get the ages right of samples with known ages, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. how do they think that they can get the ages right of samples with unknown ages? Um, what, for me, I, I think I have a theological answer to this, Romans 1, right, where we suppress mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. truth and unrighteousness. Um, the Bible calls this self de- self-deception. Uh, psychologists will refer to this as cognitive dissonance, where you see something and yet you ignore that, convince yourself it's not true. But what I'm interested in is hearing your response to um, the the secular scientific community. Uh, are they how are they dealing with these problems, and are they just ignoring them? What what's going on here in that perspective? Uh, they ignore them because. They have a a priori assumption Mm -hmm. that the Earth is billions of years old, Mm. and so uh, you select you select what gives you the 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 age you want, Mm -hmm. and you minimise the problems. I mean, they go to vast lengths to explain away contamination. Sure, we'll ignore those samples, but this sample gives me the age I want, and so that's what we'll say is the is the Mm. true age. Um, I mean, John, it's even worse than that because, you know, we talk about, I talked about the decay rate. Well, we, we measure the decay rate in the laboratory, but there's inconsistencies over the years. And the only way that they've been able to reconcile those inconsistencies is to recalibrate hmm. all the other L, L, uh, parent atom decay rates against the uranium, one of the uranium atoms decay rates. Hmm. So they're assuming that's correct, and then they've recalibrated everything else so that the potassium argon age agrees with the uranium age. So they've Hmm. made things to agree. But then then how do they do do some of the analyses? Well, they have to compare what they get from their instrument with a standard of known age. But how do they know the the known age of the standard? By using the same methods. (laughs) So they're arguing in circles. Sure, circular reasoning. And, and so um, the, 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 they end up arguing, well, it works, doesn't it? It gives us the results hmm. we want, and therefore um, they are choosing, they are choosing to, to what, is, what fits their worldview and what doesn't. Sure. And so that's, that's <clears throat> the real problem that they don't recognize. I, I heard someone say once, and you could tell me uh, if, if, if you agree with this, but I heard someone say one time that usually we think of the scientific community as, as saying first comes the evidence and then comes the worldview, but in reality it ends up being first comes the worldview and then comes the evidence 
made to fit that worldview. Absolutely. Um, Science is not done in a vacuum. Hmm. Um, scientists come to problems with pre-assumed viewpoints and then they sift through the data and interpret it in terms of that viewpoint that they have already. This, you know, for me, hearing hearing you talk about this, this gives me, um, in one sense, great encouragement as a Christian to say that the evidence does line up with Scripture. Um, how, how would you exhort us, maybe as, as believers who don't have the level of uh, study that you have uh, in this field, how would you encourage us to engage perhaps our friends, neighbors, relatives <clears throat> in this area who maybe have bought into some of these ideas and concepts? Um, we, we don't have the knowledge, that, that the, the deep knowledge, but what can we do to encourage them? Well, first of all, I think the Christians need to be convinced in their own minds. Sure. And the the most important thing to recognize is that human wisdom is finite and fallible. Our knowledge is limited. You know, our knowledge is but a drop in the bucket. God was there. He was the eyewitness. Yep. He's given us his word. That The, the scriptures are our absolute authority. Yeah. If the scriptures aren't correct in Genesis chapter one, they're not correct in John three sixteen. Yeah, it's that's all true. or nothing. Yep. And so yep. we can have confidence that God has told us He hasn't made it complicated. He's communicated to the man in the street, I did it in yep. six days. And then Jesus did things instantly, and he's the creator. Mm. He turned water into wine instantly. So what's the problem with him instantly creating in Genesis chapter sure. one? He did it in front of eyewitnesses. So well, first of all, we have to have confidence that we stand on solid ground, yeah. and then we have to we have to remind our Christian, our non-Christian friends, that whereas we don't have all knowledge, God does, yeah. and the scientists don't have all knowledge. They're finite and fallible. You look at the science textbooks a hundred years ago; they're being changed and thrown out because science moves onward, onwards. Mm-hmm. Man discovers new things all the time. You know, what you and I were taught in high school has changed now. Yep. And yep. and so if, if, if man's word, science is changing, and God's word doesn't change, where should we where should we anchor our faith and our life? In in the truths of God's word. Yeah. And so we can use the evidence to show them, and this is why it's important to have the evidence. Sure, the Holy Spirit is gonna convince them. But we have the responsibility, God-given responsibility, to use the evidence. You know, the average Christian only has to be armed with a few facts, like we've discussed about, you know, Mount Narahoe or sure. the lavas in Hawaii, etc. And that makes the person in the street stop and think, "Oh, okay, sure. I didn't realise that." And and you start to then open them up to consider that God's word has has the answers that we need, and God's word records a reliable history of of the earth's origin and therefore it's it's we need to listen to the gospel message because that's the bottom line and that's what has always encouraged me about answers in genesis is going back to the authority of the word in all things and it's so refreshing to hear that in in today's day and age i wanted to oh go ahead i was just going to say john before you move on that you know we can convince people about the evidence even convince them that the earth is young Right, but unless we point them to the Creator, absolutely, yeah, we're wasting our time. Correct, we've got to give them the gospel because yep. that's what they need to hear. Yeah, and and again, to to just say at answers in Genesis, 
all of the displays that, that you guys have. I've, I've been to the Ark and the Creation Museum, and it's always gospel-focused. There's a mm-hmm. purpose behind be. what you're doing, and and that's refreshing to me. You're not just trying—I don't get the sense that you're just trying to win an argument. Um, no. You're trying to no. win people to Christ. And that's well, we want to lay out the evidence so they will consider the gospel. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask, one of the things that I do from time to time when I interview someone is I just open up uh, for questions from people outside, mm-hmm. and I have a few questions that are submitted. I'm just going to read these, and maybe just, yep. I, I probably won't interact with them much, but just let you give an answer. Um, the, the first question that uh, I had submitted was this, what are the questions that young earth creationists still find difficult to answer? Uh, first... I think first and foremost, one of the ones I think of is um, particular fossils are only found in certain layers. Okay. And, and sometimes they might be, you know, you might just have this one band of one particular fossil and another band, a different fossil. We've got a lot of work to do to understand okay. the dynamics of what was going on in the flood that would produce these sorts of separated layers with fossil, the separate fossils in them. Okay. Are there any articles written about that topic at Interest in Genesis? No, not, not yet, really? because okay. we haven't gotcha. we haven't got to that yet. Sure. We we can explain the the overall order of fossils in the fossil record as being the burial order of the flood, mm-hmm. but but the fine details we've got a lot of homework to do. Remember, there's only a few of us. <laughs> what uh, this might relate to the last question, but what what work still needs to be done filling out the young Earth creationist uh, model? Oh, there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, that, dealing with a fossil record like that is one thing. I mean, understanding, you know, there's still a lot of debate about, well, where in the geologic record does the flood begin and where does it end? Mm-hmm. And most of us agree where it begins, and, and that's pretty easy to explain. But where does it end in the record? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got to understand, therefore, what the how the fossils what fossils relate to the pre-flood world what fossils relate to the post-flood world mm-hmm. from animals getting off the ark and dispersing after the flood so there's lots of work to be done in that area and there's still lots of work to be done in this area of, of um, radioisotope dating as well mm-hmm. um, I'm still working on various issues there sure. so um, it's an unfinished task and we encourage young people to look into making it a career. Yep, absolutely. Here's a question that came in as well, and this one I'm uh, particularly interested in, but uh, the question is this. Have you seen secular advocates for billions of years adjust their rhetoric in response to young earth creationist work in geology? In other words, it's unlikely they'll ever admit that young earth creationist proponents were right, but have they uh, implicitly done so by backing off of particular claims they used to make in response to work you've done? Does the question make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Sadly, John, um, most of most of the um, most of the secular advocates um, don't even read or acknowledge sure. the young Earth creationist scientific work. Um, even even Christians that hold to an old Earth rarely look at young earth creationist uh, literature. In actual fact, when I've seen them written, write about about us, they usually get it wrong mm-hmm. because they, they haven't read what we've written right. in total. And so that's very sad. Occasionally there might be some toning down of rhetoric, but usually not. Because like an example that I think of, and I, I'm not familiar with the facts on this, but 
I think some of the conversation has shifted in some instances, not all, where some evolutionists are saying are 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 looking more to um, layers being formed through water and in rapid laydown of these layers instead of through the millions of years. Uh, not every case, but is that happening out there at all? Uh, yes, on local on on specific examples. Okay. I'll give you one recently up in um, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a, a geologist was looking at uh, some fossils uh, in a gully that the interstate cuts across. Okay. And uh, he was able to relate it to the um, meteorite impact down in Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, uh-huh. the Chicxulub in- impact event. And he, he therefore said that this layer, as a result of the, the, the devastation caused by that impact, produce that layer in just a few hours. Okay. And the, the evidence he presented was very good. So in that instance, yes, there's some recognition that catastrophic processes sure. are involved, but they still want millions of years between right. these catastrophic events, and some of the catastrophic events are only local rather than considering a global okay. catastrophic event. Okay. No, that's helpful. That, that makes sense. Um, are there new theories or um, uh, new theories at all that evolutionists – have proposed recently that creationists need to answer that are new on the radar? Um, uh, in geology, well, we're, we're, they're always throwing up new things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they've, they've, their ideas change from year to year based on incoming research. I mean, we've, sure. we've still got to, for example, have an integrate the occurrences of, say, meteorite impacts within the flood, uh, flood year, and mm-hmm. some after some after the flood, um, how that relates to the flood processes. Um, you know, craters on the moon. When when did they when did they occur in the in the mm-hmm. in the biblical timeline? Sure. So, there's lots of things that they throw up. <clears throat> I mean, the dating of the craters on the moon is problematical in itself, but that's another story for another day. Sure. Well, Dr. Snell, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, um, and, and I do want to say thank you for your ministry and research uh, that you do personally, as well as uh, Answers in Genesis. I've had a few different uh, individuals from Answers in Genesis on the podcast from time to time, and it's always a delight, and I, again, just continue to walk away with this idea that that what you're doing is done out of a love for the Word, it's a love for the authority of the word, and that's that's the most encouraging to me. So thank you for what you all are doing uh, there, thank and, you. and keep and it up. So thanks for yeah, being thank on today. Thank you, and I, I, pleasure to do that. And what I'd add is that uh, yeah. we also need to be doing good science, yes, so that it reflects on our Christian faith with yes. integrity and honesty. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And I and I so thank you very you much. Guys model that. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.com.